Welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming to you directly from the Walter P. Ruther Library, Wayne State University, in the heart of the Cass Corridor of Detroit, Michigan. My name is Dan Galadner, your host today, and I'm here, of course, sitting across from me right now is our excellent Troy Eller English. Greetings. How are you doing? Fantastic. Have you paid your taxes? I did. Are you one of those that do it like a month before, or you just did it? Uh, th- this year, it was uh, mid-March. That's pretty good. Or maybe even early March. Nice. Nice. We just filed. So, yeah. Well, you know, we got time. You have till Monday. Um, the reason we're talking about taxes right now is today we're going to discuss on our podcast public school financing uh, with Ph.D. candidate Kelly Goodman. So Goodman came here on two scholarships, the Albert Shanker Fellowship and the Sam Fishman Travel Grant. After the podcast, I'll tell you more about those. Kelly is getting her PhD from Yale University, and the title of her dissertation is Tax Limits, the Political Economy of American School Finance. She is following the political disputes between teacher unions and business associations over the funding of public schools in the U.S. from the 1930s through the 1970s, and she's focusing on two states— Michigan and California. Um, the reason she's doing that is Michigan was a leader in the 1930s on um, taxes for public schools, as well as California in the 1970s for that. So lean back and relax, and you'll get to learn all about sales tax and property taxes and why people hate to pay them, why they love to pay them, because we know what they're going towards. Troy? It's for the children. It's always for the children. We must think of the children. Also, she makes taxes surprisingly entertaining. So it's taxes, but it's fun taxes. <laughs> it's fun. If there is a thing, it's fun taxes. Okay. Oh, also, she tells us about a creation of a little organization called ALEC. Let's hear from a Miss Goodman. Hi, Kelly. How are you doing? I'm great, Dan. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for joining us. Of course. We've been kind of living in our reading room for how many months now? It's been a while. Yes. I think we have your your own chair. I would be honored. (laughs) We'll put a plaque. Um, Let's just start off first. You haven't started writing yet, right? Correct. I'm in the dissertation research phase. All right. So, how? What kind of May advice? May never end. <laughs> what kind of advice do you have for anybody starting out their dissertation? How did you come across this kind of research? What are your methods? Sure. I uh, came across my education history topic by experiencing public schools throughout the Michigan region when I was growing up here and going to college here and having a lot of questions about why some schools were good and why some schools were perceived to be bad and why different amounts of money went different places. And when I was an undergrad at the University of Michigan, I did some work in Detroit and got to talk to former teachers and principals and kind of test out their real-world views of education policy in my own historical research. And so that left me with a lot of questions that I couldn't answer in an undergraduate thesis, but I tried to answer when I was working as a data analyst in the city inside um, 
the schools and I uh, still couldn't answer <laughs> all of my questions and thought that uh, historians were asking the, the bigger structural questions about how the economy worked and for who. Uh, so I went to grad school. So I think my advice would be uh, to follow <laughs> your own experience as you're thinking about what research might be relevant to your life and the lives of people you care about. And then once you're in grad school, to do as much research as you can before you settle on your dissertation topic and travel around and search in archives and libraries and see what stories are not being told. Right. And you've been to a lot of archives already, right? I have been on something of an American archival tour <laughs> for the past many months. Uh, and what I found is that uh, there's a conversation happening across libraries between many different collections. And so I've been um, tracing out teachers unions and business associations all over the country um, in places you might not expect. So there's an actual conversation going on between the libraries. Interesting. They're talking to each other. <laughs> well, you know, from from the distance of uh, death and many years. But uh, <laughs> so I can give you an example. When I was uh, here in the Ruther, I uh, found a correspondence amongst the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers Executive Board in the early 40s that I did not know what to do with. They were um, talking about how they had been approached by a representative of the National Association of Manufacturers, the pioneering industrial lobby, and they were debating whether or not to talk to the leadership of um, their reputed foe on all things educational. And uh, you know, kind of put it aside, <laughs> didn't know what to do with it. But when I was in the archives of the National Association of Manufacturers, sure enough, um, that organization started a program at the end of the 1930s to uh, cooperate with educators, mm -hmm. as they called it. And uh, the American Federation of Teachers rival, the National Education Association, took them up on this and you know, went on a countrywide tour promoting free enterprise and business in the early 1940s, and the American Federation of Teachers did not. Hmm, interesting. That's pretty cool. That, that is a great conversation that you find out through archives. Um, so yeah, your, your dissertation is based on school finance. Why don't you give us a quick overview of what you're hoping to, to write about? I am writing about the grassroots political history and the popular economic ideas behind how we fund schools through taxes in the 20th century. And I picked the 20th century because the new associational forms of teachers unions, of business associations, of civic organizations that are federated from the local to the state to the federal play an important role in how we finance schools throughout the 20th century. And I'm able to see how that changes decade by decade because I start and end in moments of economic crisis going from the Great Depression to stagflation in the 1970s. So what was going on in the Great Depression in Michigan? How, how are schools being financed? We know everything was basically bottoming me out. So... What plans did they put in place? So in Michigan in the 1930s, 
schools are mostly funded by local property taxes. And at the height of the Great Depression, many people and businesses stopped paying their property taxes. And uh, teachers, including many, many others, are trying to figure out what to do. And uh, at this time, there's no um, publicly <laughs> campaigning uh, teachers union in Detroit. There's uh, the Michigan Education Association, which included many administrators um, working at the statewide level. And then there's the Detroit Education Association. And they, um, I think, lobby within the structures that are available to them until those structures change. When a group of farmers associated with the publication, The Michigan Farmer, propose a property tax cut and use a fiscal concept that I trace throughout my dissertation called tax limitation to uh, constrain uh, how many property taxes people have to pay. And so Michigan residents want to stop paying property taxes, but they want to do it legally, unlike uh, in other states where there are tax strikes. Um, and so this is the first initiative that passes in Michigan in 1932, Proposal 2, what they call 15 mil tax limitation. And so makes the school funding crisis even worse. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the breach in 1933, um, the Michigan Education Association sides with a number of other interests in enacting Michigan's first sales tax. And they do so uh, under the assumption that some of that money will go to schools. But it's a more than a decade long battle to guarantee that uh, a split of the sales tax is directed to schools. So for a time, schools are in fact funded at a much lower level and, and teachers do take a, a pay cut. Right, right. And this is about the same time the Michigan Federation of Teachers organized. Was they organized, were they organized essentially for this, on this fight? Or also was it tenure or was it other reasons or basically all of the above? Uh, that is a a great question, and I can tell you what I'm seeing thus far, but as um, uh, perhaps my piece of advice to other historians that I have not taken myself, don't photo blitz your way through the archives, so I cannot say for sure, <laughs> uh, but uh, I know that one of the reasons that the Michigan Federation of Teachers is organized is to um, have a statewide lobbying capacity on finance questions because teachers get surprised by the 15 mil tax limitation. And then for many years after, there's a statewide constitutional amendment for 15 mil tax limitation. A number of cities opt themselves in. Um, cities that are not home rule, like Detroit, that already have um, a property tax limitation in their city charter. But cities like Grand Rapids, um, who decide to cut their own budget. Wow. So it really was wild, wild west still on funding for schools. It seems that all right, you have the MEA and MFT kind of rising up and taking on their own lead to try to politicalize what's going on, lobbying. I'm sure the conservative right was not happy about this at all. Uh, teachers getting involved with politics is a big no-no still in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. So um, what, what groups formed in the 30s in, in Michigan to kind of counter? I'm sure there was a huge counter. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the things that I hope to do with my dissertation. I know that a lot of teachers union history is focused on divides within the labor movement to explain why teachers um, don't enact the educational vision um, that especially the AFT uh, 
pass, but I think that teachers faced a lot of opposition. And especially in a place like Michigan, where industry is growing rapidly during this period, uh, there were a number of organizations that teachers themselves identified. And this is another way that I got into the topic, is just seeing what the teachers said and seeing what the business organizations said about each other. But, um, you know, the... uh, uh, some of the leaders of the Michigan Federation of Teachers uh, single out uh, the Detroit Bureau of Governmental Research, uh, which is now the Citizens Research Council of Michigan, which would regularly issue salary reports that usually said that the teachers did not need a raise. Oh, and uh, the teachers disagreed for many reasons. <laughs> and uh, there were a number of uh, associated surveys, including what was called the Michigan Public Expenditure Survey. So this is the early 40s moment that we're in, um, that the Michigan Federation of Teachers, again, singled out as being closely associated with the local Chamber of Commerce and um, being flawed. And teachers elsewhere, including uh, in New York, singled out as being a front, they called it, uh, for the Tax Foundation, which again has a close association when it's formed in the 1930s with large businesses. So there's a whole bunch of tentacles going out there. All right. So... Obviously, organizations are are getting together to combat with the teacher unions and the, the left wants for taxes. Who who was I, – I remember you telling me about this guy. We, we both discovered this guy. Arthur? Arthur Elder, tax yeah. expert of every organization one could imagine at mid-century. I am still learning more and more about him, but this is uh, one of those moments in archival research where you see the same name popping up everywhere. It's like he's following you. And in both the Ruther's collections and um, down in Ann Arbor at the Bentley Library, Arthur Elder is everywhere from the 1930s to the 1950s. Uh, He starts out as a Detroit teacher. He's a founder of the Michigan Federation of Teachers. And indeed, uh, in its early days, he's writing bulletins to all the members statewide, calling uh, the income tax the most equitable tax and the sales tax the most despicable. (laughs) And this is a line he carries throughout his work for the next several decades. And uh, he works as a... uh, Vice President of the American Federation of Teachers. He's part of the anti-communist wing of that organization. He works as the director of what was then the University of Michigan's Workers' Educational Service um, before he is fired unceremoniously by the Board of Regents at the request of General Motors. What do you do? Well, (laughs) this is one of those stories that uh, floats around. and I think will soon be documented by a University of Michigan professor who's writing a book. Oh, cool. He led a labor extension um, that taught classes to uh, auto workers in Detroit and others across the region and employed uh, uh, a teacher who uh, he had worked with in Detroit, who at that time was working for the UAW, who distributed some pamphlets that a... um, and a GM economist sent to attend one of the workers' educational services classes objected to. He thought they were too communistic. And uh, rather than bringing this objection to the University of Michigan, he brought it to the U.S. Congress. 
Nice. And started a furor uh, that roped in the Michigan governor and the Board of Regents. And judging from their meeting minutes, they felt boxed in and would have liked to have handled the situation privately. But because GM took it public, they felt they had no choice but to fire Arthur Elder. And the Workers' Educational Service uh, folded a few months later when it um, lost the trust of labor. Oh, no. But Arthur Elder landed on his feet just fine. He uh, (laughs) moved on to the payroll of the American Federation of Labor, and George Meany himself hired him. And so he uh, was able to transition to another job um, uh, in a different labor college and continued uh, working in Michigan before dying young in the 1950s. And so a new uh, era of tax experts began. (laughs) Um, But uh, Arthur Elder played a pivotal role uh, in the labor movement in Michigan. Uh, He wrote to Walter Ruther in 1944 and uh, pitched a tax program. Ruther signed off on this and said, why don't you start running tax conferences to put this together and see what common ground we can agree on. And so the Workers' Educational Service ran some Mm -hmm. of those tax conferences. And the particular uh, teacher who distributed the objectionable pamphlets was at that conference. And I think one of the Wonderful parts about finding a figure who's this influential is that you can see how he uses different platforms in his life and in the movements he's part of to advance his mission. And so you find Arthur Elder writing on all kinds of different stationery, right? Sometimes it's his personal stationery. Sometimes it's the American Federation of Teachers. Sometimes it's the Michigan Federation. I mean, he um, is able to draw on a lot of resources to advance a tax program um, to fund schools through income taxes, progressive income taxes on the wealthiest rather than sales taxes on workers. So his ideas did come through fruitation in Michigan? Sadly, they did not. (laughs) Were you surprised? Nope, not at all. (laughs) Unfortunately, after Arthur Elder died, um, the UAW did take an increasing role in uh, tax policy in the state of Michigan and in the city of Detroit. But there were many, many hurdles uh, for teachers to be able to even levy an income tax. They had to change the Michigan Constitution. And when they did in 1963, they were only able to get a flat rate rather than a graduated rate. And uh, they were very conflicted about whether to settle for that version of the income tax. And when they uh, decided to push anyways for another constitutional change for a graduated income tax, they did so in 1972 without the backing of the civic groups that they had enjoyed in earlier years. And uh, again, with a divide within the teachers union movement uh, itself and at a, uh, a time of um, enormous change and conflict in the Detroit schools. And so they were unsuccessful uh, at the last moment they had before the tax revolt started hitting in, in cities and states. Right. So so in Michigan, it was still a slow process to getting schools funded. One, because of division within the left. And I guess the right was just taking advantage of this, pushing through their tax forms that they wanted to for funding of schools. Sure. Is that a safe thing to say? (laughs) Sure, absolutely. And uh, I think, you know, one of the things that I'm finding in the dissertation research is that 
Um, while teachers always want the income tax to fund the schools, um, certainly by the middle of the century, um, a lot of uh, conservative businesses and allied groups always want the sales tax to fund the schools and maybe a little bit less schooling right. than teachers would like. Right. So you mentioned the anti, you know, the anti-tax movement. It came from the far left coast. <laughs> Why don't we talk a little bit about, because um, your dissertation is going to talk about Michigan and California, right? So why don't we talk about what's California pre-Serrano? Um, so we have Reagan as governor. What, what kind of things were going on in the 60s in that time with the tax tax issues for school funding? Sure. Well, I should back up a little bit and, sure. and say that from my brief research in the California archives, it seems like uh, a lot of things that are happening in schools and teachers unions are happening later in California than they are in Michigan. So a lot of the free speech controversies that play out in Detroit in the 1930s are still playing out, for example, in San Francisco in the 1950s. And teachers are using different political levers in California than they are in Michigan because they have access to different kinds of power. So in California, there are not friendly boards of education in the way that there are in a union town like Detroit. And, uh, you know, the San Francisco Board of Education tries to restrict uh, teachers' ability to participate in politics in the 1950s. And in the as late as the 1960s, late 1970s, the Los Angeles teachers claim that the board is run by the Los Angeles Times, the conservative newspaper. And so they're seeking labor rights and collective bargaining, not through boards of education as happens um, often in Michigan, but through state legislative change. And so they have to find a different kind of ally. They find an educator himself, Alrada, who pushes through collective bargaining in the mid-70s. So during the 60s, when Reagan is governor, teachers don't have as much formal power as they do at that point in Michigan. And when uh, Reagan decides to start cutting the war on poverty program by program, teachers have to find new ways of resisting. But it gets to schools directly when Reagan uh, and his staff propose uh, a way to limit government, the total size of government, and let interest groups fight over who gets what, um, that they call tax limitation. <laughs> so here's this fiscal concept coming back in new form. And rather than um, a property tax cut, as it was in Michigan and many other states during the Great Depression, uh, it's instead uh, a way to tie the size of government, the size of the budget, to the size of uh, the economy in the state as a whole. And so again, lawyers draft these provisions, um, including um, many leading lights of the conservative legal movement, like Anthony Kennedy when he was in legal practice in Sacramento and teaching there. This uh, California version of tax limitation, uh, which voters reject in 1973, spreads across the country because of a different kind of federation um, that in many ways uh, the right is copying from the left that takes ideas from the local state level, spreads them across the country. Um, and uh, in the 1970s, it's the American Legislative Exchange Council. And so one of the first pieces of model legislation that um, ALEC, as it's known, and still operating today as spreads is is tax limitation. Mm -hmm. So they're spreading the templates out around there. So this is all p 
pre-Prop 13 is going on? This is all pre-Prop 13, and indeed uh, a number of the backers of tax limitation, and they see it as an alternative to tax cuts. They see it as a recognition that we need some government, but less than the left would like. Um, backers like the Chamber of Commerce don't support Prop 13 because they preferred a more moderate approach like tax limitation. So how did Prop 13 get its legs? Was it because of the Supreme Court decisions, uh, Serrano and Serrano 2, or was it just because I don't want to give my money away and on my property tax? Right. So I think this is the eternal debate mm -hmm. among scholars, and there has been a lot of research in recent years. I think much of it by sociologists like Isaac Martin that's very persuasive that argues that uh, there was actually um, – a change in assessments in the 1960s that took away people's informal tax privileges. And by the 1970s, uh, with inflation and um, the failure of legislators to provide any alternative, people had had enough. Um, but, you know, that debate continues. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I know that uh, for California residents who are facing um, drastically underfunded schools ever since it has very real consequences. Yeah, it does. So why don't we say, what is your conclusion that you're hoping to come out of your dissertation? What, as, as we always write history, always like produce history, but like to show history of the, the past is presently going on now, learning from the past and it's some reflection. Do you see anything with your conclusions or your dissertations that we can take away and learn from? We all hope. So I think the teacher strike wave last winter is uh, calling this question anew about school finance because the next thing that teachers do after they secure promises from politicians for raises and better funding is try to secure that funding themselves because they know those political promises are empty otherwise. And you see um, ballot initiatives even in Arizona already about school funding. And so I think two lessons coming out of the dissertation research thus far, especially uh, when school funding is determined at the state level, which the school finance cases of the 60s and 70s has, you know, done a lot <laughs> to push uh, funding to the state level. Uh, the National Education Association and American Federation of Teachers affiliates really do need to work together in a way that has been incredibly hard <laughs> throughout their long history uh, because the AFT walled strong in many cities and the NEA walled strong in many suburbs um, cannot actually guide state politics on school finance alone. And you see in Michigan all of the moments when um, this prevented teachers from actually funding schools fairly through the income taxes they wanted. And the second lesson is that uh, teachers are very flexible when they try to fund schools and they shift between administrative and democratic politics using whatever options they have and they shift from um, grassroots to high politics and it looks different state by state and I think uh, state-by-state state, teachers have a lot to teach each other uh, about how to fund schools. Excellent. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Dan. See you again. <laughs> Kelly Goodman was the recipient of the Sam Fishman Travel Grant and the Albert Shanker Fellowship. Um, both of these come out of the Walter Ruther Library. Uh, the Fishman Grant is for those who are coming here to do research in the American labor movement. 
And the Shanker Fellowship is created for those who want to come and use the AFT collections or collections related to educational history. So why don't you all check back at the end of the summer or the beginning of the fall. That way the applications will be open again for you to apply. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistants from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neering. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. And don't forget to subscribe to our uh, podcast and thumbs up us. Thumbs up us? Thumbs ups. <laughs> Give us a thumbs up. What up? <laughs> Listen to our podcast. Thumb it up, baby. <laughs> Gold stars, four stars, five stars. All the stars. Give us all the stars. I think that's all you can do. Subscribe. Subscribe. That'd be nice. Did you just hurt yourself? Almost. It was scary. <laughs> See, what you just said would be perfect for like the end.